0: Uh, Make your way to Psalm 23, which is the psalm which celebrates the ministry of the Good Shepherd. We know from the New Testament that Jesus is the Good Shepherd of the sheep, and this psalm really, therefore, in the ultimate sense, is about him. And I trust that, as uh, they have just sung, that we will see Jesus, perhaps, in a fresh way as we turn to this psalm. This is, as uh, C.H. Spurgeon said, the jewel of the psalms, one of the most familiar pieces of literature really in all of the world, a psalm which many of us probably memorized as children, many of us perhaps even before we knew the Good Shepherd, and it's been a psalm which for centuries had a tremendous ministry in the lives of God's people. Henry Ward Beecher is a well-known preacher of the 19th century, and he wrote this about the 23rd psalm to kind of whet your appetite for what we will study this morning. He said about this psalm, it has charmed more griefs to rest than all the philosophy of the world. It has remanded to their dungeon more felon thoughts, more black doubts, more thieving sorrows than there are sands on the seashore. It has comforted the noble host of the poor. It has sung courage to the army of the disappointed. It has poured balm and consolation into the heart of the sick, of captives in dungeons of widows in their pinching griefs, of orphans in their loneliness. Dying soldiers have died easier as it was read to them. Ghastly hospitals have been illuminated. It has visited the prisoner and broken his chains. It has made the dying Christian slave freer than his master and consoled those whom dying he left behind mourning. Not so much that he was gone as because they were left behind and could not go too. Nor is its work done. It will go singing to your children and my children and to their children through all the generations of time, nor will it fold its wings till the last pilgrim is safe and time ended. So I trust that some of that ministry that this psalm has had down through time will be our portion this morning as we study it together. David begins by referring to this in the superscription as a psalm of his. David, the shepherd king, was one who penned this psalm, and he describes it as a psalm. The word psalm, in this instance, literally means a melody. So originally, as were all of the psalms, this was a song. There was music to accompany these lyrics. All that's come down to us now is the lyrics, this beautiful poem, that, as all that has come down to us, the music long since gone. It's a shame in many ways because music helps us to remember lyrics. They really fix them in the mind and the heart. Uh, Most of you probably had this experience driving down the road listening to an oldie station. song comes on you haven't heard for 15 years and just in moments you're singing along word for word. Splish, splash, I was taking a bath. Long about a Saturday night, it just comes flooding back. Memory reawakened. And we don't have that benefit for Psalm 23, but... Nevertheless, this has been a psalm that's been memorized and committed to uh, the heart by many believers down through the ages. Now David, as you are well aware, was a shepherd in his early days. That's what he did as he grew up. And as David contemplated, as he thought back on his life and his work and his role as a shepherd, he realized the many ways in which the role of a shepherd is the very same as the role of the Lord. In other words, the The things that a shepherd seeks to do for his sheep are the very same things that the Lord seeks to do for us, his people, the sheep of his pasture. And so he begins in verse 1 by describing the Lord as his shepherd. The Lord, he says, is my shepherd. Now, really, every word in this little opening phrase is worth spending some time thinking through. First of all, when David says that the Lord is my shepherd means that he sees himself uh, as a sheep. Uh, that's his self-concept. He is a sheep and the Lord is his shepherd. And the things that, that a shepherd does for his sheep are the things that the Lord does for him. The role of a shepherd is to nurture and to protect and to feed and to guide and to defend and to watch over and to look out for, to protect it says, all these things are the things that the Lord does for me because I am a sheep and he is my shepherd. I've never cared for sheep, but from my conversations with people who have, I don't particularly wish to. This is not a particularly flattering self-concept to see ourselves as sheep. Sheep are by nature uh, willful and stubborn and uh, stupid, dumb, uh, defenseless, uh, unintelligent will follow the herd instinct every time, even to their own uh, destruction. In fact, if you have a flock of sheep, from what I've told, who are grazing in a well-watered, lush pasture, if one sheep can find a hole in the fence that surrounds that pasture, he will walk through that hole in the fence, even if all that is outside the pasture is barren soil, and he will remain out there. And what's more, all of the other sheep in the fold will follow him through that hole in the fence and they will wander around in this barren ground where there's no food, no nourishment, uh, even though they could easily come back into the fold. And they'll stay out there until the shepherd sends the sheepdog after them. And when they see the sheepdog coming, they will do the intelligent thing, run the opposite way, try to get as far away from help as they can until they are forced to come back into the into the fold. And sheep, as David uh, were aware, were basically helpless creatures that if left to themselves w- w- would ruin uh, themselves, destroy themselves. And so the place we have to begin if the Lord is to be our shepherd is we have to come to that place where that's how we see ourselves, that we see ourselves as sheep, as basically willful, not too bright, not wise enough, not intelligent enough, not strong enough to handle life by counting upon our own resources. We have to see ourselves as people who need somebody to look out for us, somebody to look after us, somebody to protect us, really, the last analysis from ourselves. And David says, I found someone who can do that and be that for me, and that person is the Lord. The Lord, he says, is my shepherd. Now, elders are intended to be shepherds. In fact, that's one of the terms that's used to describe them in the New Testament. They are, are, are shepherds. Uh, more technically, they are under-shepherds. Uh, Jesus is the chief shepherd. Elders and others who carry out a shepherding ministry in the body of Christ are under-shepherds. But that's all they are. They're just under-shepherds. Under what David understood, what he realized, and one of the things that we need to understand from this psalm is the only one who can truly be our shepherd is the Lord. There's always a risk when we draw upon the help that people can provide to us, that we can become too dependent on that help. And if that person, that pastor or that elder or that counselor or that teacher or that friend that we have have learned to depend on and count on if they're not available, if they're not accessible, if we can't reach them and we're in the midst of some crisis, uh, we can panic. But David says there's no need to do that because the one who is truly your shepherd is the lord and he's always available even if a human shepherd is not available to you there is one who is there to look out for you and to be what you need and it is the lord the word he uses the name he uses for the lord here is the is the hebrew word that is related to the to the verb to be uh, literally the lord is the one who is and i think the reason that uh, the lord used this name for himself as he was communicating to to the to his people that i am Whatever you need me to be, I am whoever you need. I am whatever you need. You can fill in the blank. I am the one who is comfort when you need comfort. I am the one who is strength when you need strength. I am the one who is. Now you'll notice also that David says the Lord is my shepherd. Not might be, not uh, will be at some time in the future, uh, not will be under certain circumstances, but the Lord, he says, is right now my shepherd. He's the one who is constantly... Uh, on duty as as my shepherd and he you know David doesn't speak generically he doesn't say the Lord is our shepherd speaking of the people of Israel although that is true just as the Lord is the shepherd of this flock uh, the elders look to him to provide direction and counsel and wisdom and insight to provide leadership for this flock so he is our shepherd but that's not what David emphasizes here he says the Lord is is my Shepherd individually, he is my shepherd, and the same thing could be said of each one of us this morning. Not only is the Lord our shepherd, but he is also my shepherd, and the Lord is your shepherd. There are hundreds of us in this room this morning, and all of us have uh, different needs. All of us are bringing different fears and different uh, anxieties and different insecurities and different uh, disappointments, different hopes, different ambitions, different fears. Uh, Just a whole spectrum represented. In this room, each one of us has a unique set of needs. And yet, the Lord is our shepherd. He is my shepherd and He is your shepherd. He knows each one of us individually. He knows what our needs are. And He, right now, this morning, even as we are studying this psalm, He is your shepherd. He is my shepherd. He knows what you need, what your needs are, and He is committed to meeting those needs, to satisfying them. He is a shepherd who is committed to looking out for the needs of his sheep. And that means me, and that means you. The Lord is my shepherd. Now because of that, because the Lord is the kind of shepherd he is, David goes on in the end of verse 1 to say that I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. Now we need to understand what David means by the word want here. The NIV, I think, has translated it better at this point. Because the Lord is my shepherd, the NIV says, I shall lack nothing. The point is that every need that I have as a sheep will be met by my shepherd. It's not that I will stop wanting things or stop wishing for things. That's not David's point. His point is, because of the kind of shepherd that the Lord is, I will lack nothing that I need. So his point is, the Lord as your shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, is committed this morning right now as we are studying these words, he is committed to meeting every need that you have. He is committed to satisfying every need that you have in your life. That all of us can say this morning right now, because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack for anything that I need. Now, it doesn't mean that the Lord will give us everything that we want, but he will give us everything that we need. In fact, sometimes he will take away the things that we want or wish for or think we need in order to make us realize that all we need in life is him and what he supplies. Sammy Rutherford illustrated it this way. He says, if you had a friend who lived in a closed room, walled in on all sides, dark room, And the illumination in this room was provided by lamps. And he idolized these lamps. He built his life around these lamps. The best thing you could do for that man would be to sweep through that room and extinguish all of those lamps so that you could lead him outside that closed-in room to see the light of heaven. And David is saying the same thing about the Lord. He is committed to meeting every need that we have, even if it means taking away from us things that we want. And David's point is if there's anything that we do not have that the Lord does not provide for us, then it is something that we do not need to be utterly content. Whether it's a husband or a wife uh, or a child, uh, we can do without those things, no matter how much we may want them, because the Lord is all we need. And we begin to understand that he is completely committed to meeting every need that I have and will, will fill me up with himself. And that's David's point, really, in verses 1 and 2, that the Lord, as his shepherd, is is committed to meeting our need for contentment, for wholeness, for completeness. And he illustrates it this way in verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Now, from what I understand about sheep, you cannot teach them to lie down. You can knock them over, but you can't teach them to lie down. You cannot train them to sit or heal or fetch or catch a frisbee. Uh, You cannot get them to lie down. The only way that sheep will lie down is if their hunger is thoroughly satisfied. When they have eaten to their fill, then they will lie down. And that's the picture that David uses to describe how abundantly the Lord as his shepherd has met his need. He's led me into a green pasture where the foliage is rich, the vegetation is green and lush, and, and I can eat to my heart's content and lie down in a sense of contentment and completeness. He leads me beside quiet waters. A sheep will not eat from ra- or drink from rapidly flowing water. It spooks them. So they need to be led to a place where the waters are quiet uh, and still and flowing gently, and from there they can drink and satisfy uh, their thirst. And David says that's how the Lord takes care of me. He's led me beside waters which are calm and still from which I can drink and and my thirst can be slaked. I can my thirst can be completely quenched by these quiet, cool, refreshing waters. He restores my soul, David says. Literally, he makes my soul return. He brings my soul back to me. Seems to be thinking of those times when well, that all of us experience when we are discouraged. Uh When we are defeated, depressed for one reason or another, and it seems if our soul and life and vitality and energy have just flown. And the Lord as a shepherd is the one who restores to him his soul, his sense of life uh, and vibrancy. What David might be thinking of here are cast sheep. A cast sheep is a sheep that's lying on its side or lying on its back. And when a sheep is in that position, it cannot get back on on its feet. It will just sit there and helplessly paw the air. Unless the shepherd comes along and finds that cast sheep, uh, that sheep will die on its back. And uh, what David is saying is the Lord is, is a shepherd to me when I am a cast sheep. When uh, I feel helpless and defeated and discouraged and I seem to be stuck in a, in a situation I cannot get myself out of, then he, he is a shepherd who seeks me out and finds me. And he does for me what a shepherd must do for a cast sheep. Often a, a shepherd would have to massage the belly of a cast sheep and then gently lift it back up on its feet and support it while it regained its, its legs and its strength. It's a real picture of individual care and concern and attention. And, and David says, the Lord is like that for me. He's the one who comes to me when I am a cast sheep and he's patient with me and and he gently brings me back to life and sets me back on my feet and brings me back to the flock. So his point is that the Lord is the one who so abundantly meets his needs uh, that he is utterly content. He is a sheep grazing in green meadows. He is a sheep resting beside quiet waters. He is a sheep whose soul is restored. Then he goes on in the middle of verse 3 to say that not only does the Lord meet his need for contentment, he also as a shepherd meets his need for character. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The word for paths here refers to wagon tracks, refers to a path which is well-worn. And the reason a path would be well-worn is that it led to to the right destination. People have discovered that this path would take them to the place they wanted to go, and therefore it becomes well-worn. If you go out here off of I-84, you can still find ruts from the Oregon Trail tracks that are worn deep into the earth. It's still visible today, a hundred years later, and more, because the settlers had discovered that this trail would take them to their destination. And the the paths that our shepherd desires for us uh, to walk are the paths... Of righteousness. They're well-worn because many sheep before us have been led down these paths of righteousness and discover that it takes them to their destination of wholeness and integrity and, and self-respect. And our shepherd is the one who guides us in these paths. Sheep uh, need to be guided. As Isaiah pointed out, uh, sheep left to themselves will turn to their own way. They'll wander off the path every time. And the role of a shepherd when he sees a sheep leaving the path which leads to the next meadow, is to take his shepherd's staff, the, the, the long uh, staff with the crook at the end, and gently tap the side of the sheep and, and nudge it and poke it back onto the path. And I think David has chosen the word guide here very deliberately, that, that the, the shepherd does not drive the sheep in paths of righteousness. He doesn't harass or harangue or whip the sheep. Sheep need to be led not driven. And that's what our shepherd does for us. When he sees us drifting from the path of righteousness, he has gentle ways of nudging us back on track, of giving us a quiet reminder of what his will is for us, and nudging us back when we tend uh, to drift. I read a story in Decision Magazine just a couple of weeks ago about a family that was on uh, vacation, and... They were stopped at this beautiful um, national park and enjoying the scenery. And as they came back to their car to leave, they were approached by a very angry man who was shaking his fist at them. His face was beat red and accused them of damaging his car, which was parked right next to theirs. It says, you put a dent in the door of my car. And the, the father in this family, Gently explained, no, that we were very careful when we got in and out of our car and, and we, we couldn't have damaged your car. Uh, someone else may have done it, but we, we did not do it and tried to be as gentle as he could, but the man's wrath uh, remained unabated. And finally, all the man could do was just to leave, just to pull his car out with his family in it and leave the man angry, standing there shaking his fist and cursing at them as they drove away. Now, it happens that this family at this time had been working on a scripture verse that their daughter had memorized in Sunday school, Psalm 56, uh, 3, not Psalm 56, 3, but Romans twelve seventeen, which says, Do not pay back evil for evil. Do not pay back evil for evil. Their 8-year-old daughter had been learning this in Sunday school, so they had been helping her with this. And as they left the National Park and drove to their next destination, they began to review this verse in the car. Well, a few minutes later, the man in this red car... Pulled up right behind them, very narrow road, no room to pass, and just tailed them all the way down this narrow road, uh, right on their bumper. Finally, they were able to find a wide spot in the road and pulled over, and the man whipped past them, spewing gravel as he, as he raced past them. And they finally were relieved to see him gone. About ten minutes later, as they rounded a, a, a corner, they saw this red car, parked by the side of the road with the hood up and uh, steam rising up out of the uh, from under the hood. It's decision time. <laughs> now the natural impulse would be to plow right past that guy. He deserves everything he's getting. Uh, let him stew in his own juice. See if I'm going to stop and help him after what he did to me. But the good shepherd used the a little poke from Romans 1217 that was the staff that he reached out and tapped the father in this family with do not pay back evil for evil and reminded of that he stopped his car gave the man a ride into town and arranged for a tow truck with him to come back and then drove him back to the car and to his family it was a powerful object lesson to the daughter but But it was an object lesson, too, for us of the way in which the Lord uses just a variety of methods to guide us in paths of righteousness. Now, why does the Lord do that? Well, he says in the end of verse 3, he does it for his name's sake. I think what David is alluding to here is the fact that all of us bear the name of our shepherd. We are known by his name. We carry with us the name of Christ. And people form their impressions of Christ by what they see in us. Their assessment of him is often based on what they observe in us. And what David is saying is that the Lord is willing to take that risk. That's a really amazing thing. That he is willing to stake his reputation on our behavior. He is willing to stake his reputation on the way others see us treat our wives and our husbands and our children and the way we handle ourselves in our offices and softball diamonds and, and golf courses and bowling alleys. He's willing to stake his reputation on what people see in us. And he's there to guide us in paths of righteousness, to, to prod us, uh, to make us people who bring credit uh, to his name. And he does that. He guides us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now at this point, someone could say, well, you know, if I were feasting in green pastures and I was resting beside uh, quiet waters, I'd be a happy camper too. Who wouldn't be? Uh, what I need is something that's good for the for the dark times in life, uh, for the times when I'm facing bankruptcy or going through a divorce or facing some serious illness, possibly even terminal illness, or have suffered facing death myself uh, or facing the death of someone that I've loved and have to walk through that. That's when I really need a shepherd. And so David goes on in verse 4 to say that the Lord is the one who provides our need not only for contentment and character but also for courage and comfort in the dark times in life. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod is and your staff, they comfort me. Often in the summer months, uh, good shepherds would take their sheep to, to mountain meadows, higher ranges, and graze them for the summer in these, these mountain pastures and then bring them back to the ranch, to the fold for the winter months in the lower flatlands. But on their way to and from these mountain pastures, they would often have to take their sheep through narrow ravines and canyons and valleys which were dark and which were forbidding to the sheep and and places of of fear because of the darkness and because of the fear of predators who could strike at that time because they could pick off these sheep uh, one by one. And David faced those times in his life where the shadow of death had fallen over him. And I think what David means by the shadow of death is anything that is profoundly threatening or disturbing or frightening to us, whether it's an illness or a divorce or, or bankruptcy or, or injury, anything that induces fear in us, that's the shadow of death falling upon us. And David says, even though I have to walk through that kind of a valley where the shadow of death falls on me, I don't fear, I don't need to fear what can happen to me in that valley. I don't have to fear the the injury or the misery or the calamity that might befall me in those threatening circumstances because you, my shepherd, are with me. Notice how David has changed the pronoun here. The first uh, three verses, it was the third person, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. He guides me. He restores my soul for his namesake. But now as David walks through the valley of shadow of death, a, a time of real crisis and threat in his life, uh, the pronoun changes, becomes second person, you are with me, your rod and your staff. And I think what David is alluding to is it's often in those times of real crisis and pressure that our, our relationship, our intimacy with the Lord deepens as we cling to him to bring us through those difficult times. And the reason he says he fears no evil is that your rod and your staff are there to comfort me. A rod was uh, like a nightstick, kind of a sawed-off baseball bat. Shepherds would often uh, custom make these to fit their grip and be just the right length and heft, just as a baseball player would choose a bat of a certain length and, and weight. And shepherds were very adept at using these rods uh, to drive away predators. They were even adept at throwing them some distance to to hit a predator that might be attacking one of one of the sheep. Uh, Philip Keller wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. A number of my thoughts about the role of shepherds are drawn from that uh, book. He himself was a shepherd for a number of years. He mentions one episode in his life that brought the reality of the comfort of a rod home. To him, he was on a photo safari in Africa with a Maasai herdsman as his guide, and they'd come across a a tribe or whatever of elephants, and they wanted to drive these elephants out into the open land. And so he and his tribesman decided to roll this big boulder down this mountainside to spook the elephants out into the open and as the two of them began to move this very heavy boulder, as they lifted it up, what it uncovered underneath was a coiled uh, cobra. And before the cobra could strike, the Maasai herdsman whipped out his rod and beat the, the cobra to death to protect both of them. Hadn't even dropped the rod to, to uh, this, his club to move this heavy rock. Kept it constantly in his grip and available so it was ready in a moment's notice. And he used it to drive away something that could have been uh, a threat. And so David says, I don't need to fear even the most threatening circumstances because the Lord is with me. And he has a rod which is constantly in his hand to drive away the enemies that might overcome me and paralyze me. And he says, your staff is there to comfort me. The staff, again, is the shepherd's crook. And that crook would be used to reach into a ravine and to pull out a sheep that had fallen in or to retrieve it from brambles or or thorn bushes, or to gently uh, nudge it back onto the path. And says, because I know your rod, your strength to protect, and your your staff to comfort and guide is there, I can walk through these very threatening circumstances uh, without fear. In our body lifetime in the first hour, A.J. O'Neill shared, if you notice in the bulletin, her husband was diagnosed uh, earlier this week with a brain tumor, which appears uh, to be something that can be treated. His prognosis is good, but when she first... Got the word about his condition. Uh, she was in Cascade. He was in a hospital here in Boise, and she was just uh, overcome uh, with fear. In fact, the way she described it in her body lifetime was that she was just literally paralyzed with fear. Uh, couldn't move. Couldn't speak. Had her grandson with her, who was who was crying. She couldn't hear her grandson cry. A moment of panic. And in that, that moment of panic, as she faced the shadow of death falling over her and her family, she turned to the Lord and says, "Lord, I don't know how to deal with this. I can't. I can't handle this. I need you uh, to come alongside me and to be my strength and to help me through this." And she went on to describe uh, the sense of peace that began to began to invade her soul as the Lord used His rod to drive away that panic and that near. Uh, hysteria, and used his staff to draw her to himself with a sense of his presence and, and, and his comfort, his consolation. Uh, my kids um, have some tapes uh, that feature GT and the Halo Express. These are really neat tapes. They're scriptural verses put to song, real catchy tunes, make it easy for the children to remember them. It's a great way to commit the scriptures to, to memory. And I read just this past week how the, the genesis of these uh, tapes came about. The man that produces these tapes has a son who had a very serious heart condition. And they, uh, in, this, in their boy's uh, young age, they had a habit as a family of memorizing verses of Scripture together. One that they'd worked on was Psalm 56.3. When I am afraid, I will trust in God. And they had memorized this verse as a family and would speak it to, to each other. Well, because of the son's heart condition, he faced a number of surgeries, open-heart surgeries. Uh, the last and the most delicate, the most strategic of them came when the boy was about six or seven. And in order for the doctors to do the surgery they needed to do, they had to administer a drug to this young boy. off the child would be left paralyzed, possibly could die. So they, as a family, had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death as it fell on their family. And they remember, as the boy came out of this last surgery, still under the effects of the drug, as the drug first began to wear off and he was able to make some limited movement, he was able to move his mouth. He couldn't speak, but he could mouth words, and he mouthed to his his parents the words, I love you. And then they could see him mouthing to himself some other words. Uh, it was difficult for them to read his lips because of the respirator in his mouth, so they pulled closer to read his lips, and they realized that what this young boy was saying to himself is, when... I am afraid, I will trust in God. When I am afraid, I will trust in God. So there was a young boy who, who realized that even though he himself was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord would walk through that with him and provide him comfort. And the man realizing, the father realizing the benefit of the scripture in the life of his own son, wanted to make this available, these reminders of God's presence and grace available to other children, and started this, this series of tapes. And even if we have to face the loss of someone that we have loved, even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death because someone we love dies, the Lord is, as David points out here, the one who will comfort us and see us through. Uh, Philip Keller, the one who wrote the book about um, the shepherd's psalm, lost his wife to cancer several years before he wrote this book. and As he's commenting on this verse, he describes his own experience of the Lord's presence during that time. He says, During my wife's illness and after her death, I could not get over the strength, solace, and serene outlook imparted to me virtually hour after hour by the presence of God's gracious Spirit himself. It was as if I was being repeatedly refreshed and restored despite the most desperate circumstances all around me. Unless one has actually gone through such an experience, it may seem difficult to believe. In fact... There are those who claim they could not face such a situation, but for the man or woman who walks with God through these valleys, such real and actual refreshment is available. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, as David thinks back on the completeness of the Lord's ministry to him as his shepherd, how he abundantly satisfies his needs for contentment and and for character, and for courage. He thinks of another metaphor in verse 5 to sum up the, the grace of the Lord to him, and that's the metaphor of a gracious table host. You, he says, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Notice that this is in the presence of enemies, in the, in the sight of his enemies, even as they are pictured as surrounding this table, this banquet hall where he is feasting. So the point he's making is that this, uh, this completeness of, of my needs being satisfied is not dependent upon my circumstances. Even in the midst of very threatening circumstances, this is my experience. You prepare a table before me. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. The anointing of head with oil was a custom in the east, and you welcomed a guest into your home to dine at your table. It's a cologne or perfume that would be would be dabbed on the head of every guest. In fact, if you remember in Luke 7, Jesus rebukes Simon who invited him to his home and yet did not anoint his head with oil. And he contrasts that with the woman who came in and anointed his feet uh, with her tears. He says, you didn't do that, Simon. You should have, but you didn't. And here David says, the Lord is like a host who anoints my head with oil. The word for anoint here literally means to make fat. What David says literally is you've, made, you've, you've given me a fat head. You've made my head fat with oil. And I think David's point is that you have been so generous with this cologne that my hair has absorbed this and is beginning to swell with the moisture from this cologne. You have anointed generously my head with oil, made me feel a specially welcomed guest. My cup overflows. In other words, the wine goblet was filled to overflowing till it spilled down onto the, the tablecloth. Again, the host who was sloppily generous with his resources to his guest. The, the verb to prepare there in verse 5, you have the picture of patience and care in that. Here's a host who, even in the presence of, of enemies, is, is unhurried in his preparation for the special guest. He carefully... Prepares the table settings and folds the cloths and lays out the silverware and arranges the goblets and, and, and very patiently and unhurriedly sets out the food for, his, for a special guest. So David uses that as a picture of how abundantly the Lord has satisfied his needs. I understand that in Europe uh, if you wish to insult your hostess who has you over for dinner you, uh, all you need to do is to clean uh, your plate eat every last drop of food Because in European culture, what that communicates is that she didn't feed you enough. So it's polite to always leave some food on your plate to indicate that your needs have been abundantly satisfied, that your plate overflows with with good things. And that's something of what David is communicating to us here about how the Lord meets our needs. There's there's an abundant supply, not just enough to squeak by, but, but an abundant supply of his resources and strength. And so his conclusion in verse 6 is that the Lord will meet his needs completely in verse 5, but also continuously in verse 6. Surely, he says, without doubt, certainly, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word follow here doesn't mean just to kind of tag along as if you have to turn around and check and make sure it's there all the time, but it really means to pursue like a detective would follow a, A suspect It's a strong word in Hebrew. It means to to chase after or to hunt down or to pursue. And it says, The conclusion I've come to with the Lord is the shepherd in my life. His goodness, His mercy, His grace is going to pursue me. It's going to hunt me down. His goodness and loving kindness are going to find me out and are going to be mine, even if the Lord has to hunt me down to give them to me. That's how eager He is. To meet my needs, I do not have to go looking for His goodness and loving kindness. His loving kindness and mercy will come looking for me. Not only in this life, He says, all the days of my life I will have the Lord as my shepherd to abundantly satisfy my needs, all the days of my life. But not only of all the days of this life, He says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That in time and in eternity, the Lord, He says, is my gracious shepherd. I'd like to pray for us just for a moment and then I'll have Ron come back up and lead us in some worship to respond to this picture of the Lord as a gracious shepherd and would invite you as Ron did earlier to think of uh, some instances in your own experience where God has been a shepherd to you that you could share uh, with us to encourage us let's pray together and then Ron will come up and lead us in worship Lord we do thank you for this description that we see in this psalm of your goodness your commitment to us Uh, We pray that you would give us a quiet assurance that you are a good shepherd and that you'd remind us even this morning that that you individually are looking out for us and are aware of our needs and committed to satisfying them and meeting them. Give us a great sense of security and rest and assurance in that. Amen.